You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. Okay, let's talk about those first few hours and days after intubation. There is so much going on for most patients that have a new need for ventilator support, and we can easily become consumed with all the necessary steps and tasks to stabilize them. Yet, the choice to sedate or not sedate, which sedative we use, and how deeply we sedate a patient is an impactful part of stabilizing, preventing harm, and determining the future for our patients, even and especially at the beginning. A few studies throughout the years have reaffirmed the same conclusion, that early deep sedation is an independent predictor of delayed extubation and increased mortality. One study showed that deep sedation, which is a RAS lower than negative three, occurred in 76% of patients within four hours after intubation and 68% were still deeply sedated 48 hours after intubation. The study did not go beyond the initial 48 hours. This showed a direct impact on mortality. So what does this mean for us? Who can we allow to wake up right after intubation? I would suggest that most patients can with some clearly defined exceptions, such as intracranial hypertension, status epilepticus, open abdomen, many TBIs and spinal cord injuries, the inability to oxygenate with movement from cardiogenic shock or the most severe of ARDS and so forth. Yet we all must understand that mechanical ventilation is not an independent indicator for sedation, especially deep sedation, even initially. This is why we must ask questions each time, such as, does this patient have an indication for sedation? Is it worth the huge list of risks, including delirium, ICU acquired weakness, and death to sedate them right now? Are we sedating them because it is essential and there are other risks that outweigh the risks of sedation? Or are we doing this out of habit and inclination to keep them still quiet and voiceless and then deal with them later? Do we all understand this will create more complications and work for us in the long run? Have we told the family the risks involved and do they understand that we are increasing their chances of dying by automatically giving sedation without an indication? In the awake and walking ICU, almost everyone is allowed to wake up right after intubation. Paralytics are rarely used for intubation and if they are used, it is with minimal dosing, often half what others use, then bolus doses of propofol are given at the end of the procedure. Then patients are allowed to wake up and tell us what they need. This is to do a true assessment, prevent delirium, allow patients to have their autonomy in their care and ensure that they are safe, comfortable and have the best chance to survive and thrive. In truth, this approach by avoiding sedation and prompt mobility 
makes the care so much easier for everyone and drastically flips patient outcomes. Culturally, the ICU community has accepted the approach to deeply sedate now, get them situated, and then think about lightening things later when their critical and acute conditions are resolved. Yet the studies show that when we do this, we are not giving our patients the best chance to survive, let alone thrive. Those first few hours and days can define the course of an ICU stay, hospitalization, and life. This podcast has been focused on the ICU, but I was approached by an ER nurse that gave me new insight. As stay times in the ER changed during COVID, this ER nurse found an opportunity to take saving lives to a whole new level. I'm excited to have Julie tell you all about it. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name's Julie. I'm a nurse at, in Denver, Colorado. I'm an ER nurse and I work at a hospital called Lutheran Hospital and it's a level two trauma center. Awesome. And how did you even come across this concept of letting patients wake up after intubation? Yeah. So I did a project on innovation and sedation protocols in our ED and I was talking I presented this at poster at our poster annual poster fair that we have. And one of our trauma specialists came up and said, Hey, do you know about awake and walking ICUs? And I was like, I kind of heard about them a little bit in the literature, but I was focusing on sedation practices in the ED. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk in the literature about RAS scores and getting patients to different RAS scores in the ED for them to transition to the ICU. But I didn't really focus on the ICU stuff. And so my friend, Stephanie was like, you need to listen to this podcast. (laughs) And it was actually your podcast. So she sent me the link to the one where you interviewed the doctor from Denmark. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole. And of course I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like, of course, why wouldn't you do this? And so initially this project that I had taken on for my department as part of my clinical ladder work was just to work with our doctors to put into uh, place a sedation protocol. But when I started learning more about waking walking ICUs, I went to our chief medical director and looked at him and went, what do you think of letting us wake up the patients? And he looked at me and goes, why would we do that? <laughs> and I was like, well, there's this cool research. And so I started talking to him about it. And then I heard a word that our hospital is going to be an awakened walking hospital. We're on a three-year transition path to being an awakened walking ICUs in our hospital. And I was like, so it turns out our ICUs are doing this. Why don't we support them? And he's like, cool, do it let's have a meeting. Let's sit down with one of our pharmacists and let's figure out what we want to do. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And there I went. (laughs) Which I think a lot of people are trying to process the concept of the ER getting involved in this. I have never worked at ER. And so I've done, as I've been doing presentations, people have asked, well, what about the ER? And I myself thought, yeah, what about it? I I do know that for a while, ER was in the patients that we were just shaking our heads. Like they would be intubated because they were GCS of three and yet they'd come up sedated mm-hmm. and, or they just would be on such heavy benzodiazepines. I mean, this is, there must've been a new provider or something in the ER because the hospital's done this for so long, but we had to open up communication between the departments to say, when you give them this huge onslaught of benzodiazepines, it makes it more difficult for us. And then they started coming up off of sedation and I don't know if they were just turning off sedation right before they came up or if they were letting them wake up right afterward, but it made me really think about that interaction between the ER and ICU. 
And things have changed recently in the ER as far as how long you actually have these patients for, right? You can't just tube them and send them up. What has that been like, especially during COVID? Yeah. So I actually can't speak to what it's like pre-COVID because I was one of those weird nurses that was like, oh, look, there's a pandemic. Let's go from my nice cush inpatient job in a <laughs> pediatric hospital to an ER, an adult ER. Yeah. That was Reasonable. Very strange transition. I'd always wanted to work ER and then my life took some weird turns and it just opened itself up and turned out to be a really good thing. So when I came, it was after the alpha wave and I came off of orientation just as Delta was hitting the United States. So I was learning to innovate patients when we were holding for four, six, eight hours sometimes these ICU patients. I mean, it was intense and not seen before in the EDs. Like all my friends were telling me that they, I mean, it used to be like, you'd have them for maybe an hour and then they'd be up on the unit. So we quite honestly, we're learning as we were going and not to, not to make it sound like we didn't know how to manage these patients, but it was new to us and it was new to our providers and it was new to nursing. ER life is interesting with an innovative patient. A lot of times we just don't know a ton about them. Like I've had patients where we literally don't even know their name. We just get this story from EMS and they're acutely ill and we have to innovate them because they're in status seizure and we don't know why they're in status seizure or what their history is or anything else. And we're like, okay, let's do our best to keep them stable without any medical history, just the labs in front of us and what they look like. And then go from there. Slapping um, on some band-aids. Yeah, it can very, yeah, it can be very shotgun approach, honestly, because that's all the patient gives us. And then other times we have like their entire medical history because we treat them at our hospital and we treat them at our clinic. So we know absolutely everything about them. So it's a very much a big range. So that can vary. I think because we don't always know exactly what's going on with the patient, the doctors are very much having to look physically what's in front of them and go based off of minimal information and make big choices for these patients. And that can make things challenging for them. Um, Especially when you have to quickly intubate them and they're sedated. Yeah. And family still hasn't been contacted. There's no one to speak for them. And they at yeah. that point then cannot speak for themselves. Yeah. And sometimes we don't get the option of asking them, Hey, do you want to be intubated? They're crashing on us or they've already crashed and we're getting them innovated from EMS and we don't know what triggered or what they looked like before they were innovated. We just have to trust our partners in the field that they're making the right choices for our patients and move forward from there. No, absolutely. Emergency medicine is such a unique and incredible skill set, And the focus, obviously, I mean, reasonably so is keeping them alive for that moment. A lot of this podcast is how do we stabilize them and look at the big picture and keep them stable throughout critical illness and yet prepare them for the lives ahead. And yet you took this very personally when you heard about this humane approach to intubated patients. And even though you could have easily said, I'm just gonna ship them off, not gonna be my patient, <laughs> not my problem, right? What, what inspired you or why, why did you take this extra step to change this process of care? Because I, I don't think anybody gets into nursing not wanting to do the best for their patient or medicine. Like if there's another option that's better out there, I think we should try it. And I am so grateful as to where I ended up. I had a wonderful job before working in pediatrics and I love working with kids and transitioning to adults was terrifying for me. But I ended up in this amazing department with the most supportive management I've ever had in my life. And 
surrounded by incredible doctors and nurses that are all just super into doing the best for their patients. Like it's, it astounds me every time I talk to somebody about different projects that are going on. So I'm surrounded by this amazing culture of change and process and doing good for our patients. So it feels very natural to just say, how can we do this better? And for me in particular, I had a very challenging innovation with a, a COVID patient early on in my ER career. And when I was working on my clinical ladder work, I approached my educator and said, what should I do a, a project on? And she's like, think about some of the worst things you've experienced here and how you can make it better. And I was like, okay. So I kind of rolled around and then decided, thought about that experience. And I was like, that was miserable. Like that was the worst, some of the worst hours of my nursing career ever. I felt like I couldn't keep this patient stable. He was bucking the vent. He was breathing over the vent. I had him maxed out on propofol and his pressures were dropping and his oxygen status was dropping even innovated. I couldn't get him above 90%, which in Denver, our goal is 88 and up because of our altitude. So our numbers are a little bit lower for um, people that didn't think of that, but I could barely keep him above 90. At one point I could barely keep him above 80. <laughs> like we were talking about proning him in the ER. It was, it was terrible. I, I, was working with one of our best pharmacists and doctors trying to get medications on board to help support him. And my, I just, I, I felt like we were all banging our head against the wall trying to help this man. And um, he ended up paralyzed and prone in the ICU pretty quickly after I took him up. Like they were ready with the medications to paralyze and prone him upstairs because it was the last option on the table. And so I thought about that a lot and I was like, there has to be, another way like that was terrible <laughs> it's not like ever, nobody was trying it was just terrible and so that led me into the research of looking at other sedation practices and then down this rabbit hole and so when we started talking or started looking seeing the literature listening to you and then going into the literature about awake and walking I'm like why don't we just help our ICU counterparts if I can start waking them up if I have a patient that's stable enough that we're having the conversation about intubating them before we intubate them in the ED, and I can slowly talk to them about waking them up afterwards and get them set up for a better outlook in the ICU and a better outcome in general, why shouldn't I do that? Like, I'm one-to-one -one with them in our ER. All of our intubated patients are one-to-one -one in the ER, in our ER. So why can't I help my ICU friends and give them a better spot to start with upstairs? Oh, that is so powerful. Cause really, I mean, even if someone comes up on propofol, they've been on propofol for 30 minutes, even a few hours, it's, it's really not that big of a deal to let them come out of propofol. But when you are trying to transition an ICU culture and they're overwhelmed, they're burnt out and they have two to one and they're not maybe as prepared to let patients wake up. That is such a powerful position for you to say, I'm going to set them up for success. I'm going to bring up a patient that is already awake, oriented, acclimated to the tube. So then they can take it from there. So what was that like the first time you did that or even other times that you've done it, done it? Yeah. Say? So I, this project is still very much in its infancy in the ER. I where I am right now is I have approval from our um, medical director and our lead pharmacist for a sedation protocol. Now I'm working on getting our IT folks to build it out for us so that I can introduce it to all the other doctors and nurses. So everyone just kind of knows my rumor mill stories of this, but I've done this with a couple of different patients now. The first patient that I took up, it was very early in the process also for our ICU switching over to the wake and walking. So our nurses up there were 
just starting to hear about it themselves. So the nurse when I called and gave report because we are an ER that calls ahead and gives report. My old hospital was not, you just had patients appear. Yeah. So when I came here, I was like, oh, we do report? Okay. As it, um, <laughs> as it should be. What a novel concept. I called and I said, hey, she's awake and she's got a RAS of minus two. And she went, and the nurse went, oh. And I was like, she's totally comfortable. We, our protocol that was decided on was we are still on, have our patients on propofol, but they are also on a fentanyl drip. And so I had her titrated up on a fentanyl drip for physiological comfort. And then it's still on a light propofol drip just to kind of help balance things out as she was coming out of her RSI drugs as well. And, and the nurse was like, okay. And I was like, she can follow directions. She can tell me that she's not in pain. And she understands she has two tubes in her throat. One is the ventilator and one's the um, orogastric tube. And she's not pulling them. She's not restrained. She's in bed and I'm chilling next to her. And she's kind of half dozing, half waking up and can communicate with me. And she's like, oh, okay. All right, bring her up. <laughs> and I got up to the room and we started transitioning. And our IC is wonderful. When they meet us in the room, there's a crew that meets the nurse and the RT that bring the patient up. So we, there's usually like five or six of us in the room to transition the patient over to the much more comfortable bed and get them situated. And so I looked at this patient and went, okay, cross your arms. We're about to move you over. And there was another nurse in the room. Went, She's awake. <laughs> the nurse and I, the nurse that was taking her and I went, yep, she's awake <laughs> and she can follow directions and it's okay. She's comfortable. And we transition her over. And I, um, I, I do this trick with the ones that I innovate. I have a passion for sign language. So before I innovate, let my doctors innovate my patients. If they're stable enough, I teach them how to sign yes and no. And signing yes and no, uh, yes is just a fist that you shake up and down like you're nodding your head. And no is like you're quacking your fingers like a duck. And I'm like, even if all you can do is stick out your fingers or make a fist, I'll know that's yes or no. And so I taught the nurses upstairs that as well. And I, I looked at her and used her name and said, are you comfortable in this new bed? And she made a fist. And I was like, great. Are you in any pain? And she put out her fingers. No. Okay. Everybody good? I'm out. <laughs> and they were like, okay, bye. And I don't really know what happened to her because that's the nature of ER life. You give the patient up and hope that they do well and move on. But that was my first experience. And since then, it's only gotten better. Now, when I take them upstairs and they're awake, the other people in the room are like, cool, they're awake, thanks. <laughs> what an impact to the culture. And I, I've repeatedly said, I think when it comes to this, seeing is believing. So yeah. you're just giving them the opportunity to see. I mean, it's hard to validate sedating someone when they're already saying, I'm fine, I'm comfortable, don't sedate me. You're giving them their autonomy right away. The concept of someone being awake on the ventilator is usually immediately imagined as someone thrashing, biting, trying to pull out their breathing tube because that's what we see when we do sedation vacations in the ICU mm -hmm. on patients that have been sedated and are delirious. So you're allowing them this, obligatory insight into here is a calm, awake, alert patient that is free of delirium and autonomous. And it sounds like it just resonates with the nursing soul, right? The ethics of nursing. It doesn't take much convincing after they see that. And I love that you teach them simple sign language. And that just goes to prove that they retained that they were yeah. sedated, came out and they remembered that and utilized it. And now 
the rest of the team gets to continue that. And hopefully they'll have other tools for communication, but you immediately treated them as a human, even during the critical illness in the ER, and you're setting them up to have that kind of humane journey in the ICU. That is so powerful. And what kind of feedback have you heard from the ICU or from nurses that you've exposed to this process? So from the ICU, just from a handoff, I feel like the, there is a shift in the culture up there. And they're like, that's really cool. Like literally the last one I took up there was one of the people in the room that was helping transition. And I told the patient, we're going to get you ready to cross or to go into the bed. So cross your arms. And um, I can still see her face. She goes, she's awake. Oh, that's so cool. Thanks for doing that. And got her over. What I think is super interesting too, is that I hear all these stories about like these thrashing, terrible, delirious patients. I haven't had that experience at all with any of mine. And I think it's just because even one that we had that was a status seizure patient that had gotten benzos and ended up innovated. I was really surprised when she started waking up and I was like, you're, you're, oh, you're waking up. And I like got right above her and I was like, Hey, you're in the hospital. You have a tube down your throat and started walking her through everything that was going on. And she woke up fine and without thrashing or biting as soon, as long as I was able to stay with her and keep talking her through, I was like, you're in a safe place. You know, you don't remember what happened. We're going to walk you through it. Just hold my hand, hold my hand for the moment and I'll walk you through what's going on. And that one ended up being really powerful. That was one of the cases where we didn't know her name even. And I wasn't able to, she never woke up enough for me to like give her a pen and paper to get her name. But I later heard through the grapevine that she was able to write down her name. We were able to get history. Turned out that she had been, um, we just were told that she was, seizing outside a liquor store. So we were just treating her for seizures. It turns out she was assaulted and ended up with multiple internal injuries that we had no clue about because all we had, what was in front of us. And because we were able to, or because I would like to think that because I let her wake up and she was able to communicate, they were able to get that story much faster than they would have had otherwise. Oh, absolutely. I wonder all the time, how are we getting full history, full information, especially in those patients that, I mean, the wake and walk and ICU is by a homeless shelter and a drug park. And so there are lots of people that come in unidentified and our goal is to identify them and who better to identify themselves. Exactly. As, I mean, I've had people that, you know, they're encephalopathic for different kinds of reasons. We look in their wallet, we get a card, an ID. But once they come to and they can tell us who they are, it's not the ID. That was a fake ID. So that oh, wasn't wow. helpful to us. We couldn't find family off of a fake ID and things like that. So also pain is such a huge vital sign and it tells us so much. They're having internal bleeding and abdominal pain. You, you can't get that from someone that is just comatose. So I'm sure that totally changed her trajectory because you allowed her to wake up. So that is such a powerful example. And how has the perception been in the ER? Or any, is anyone else feeling comfortable with this? <laughs> so I, I have some friends that are trying it and they kind of know what to do, but part of it is they're waiting for the rollout and the actual education because we'll do some education for everyone with it. When I first started talking about it, people were like, excuse me, what? I, no, there's no way. If I'm innovated, I want to be sued. And I was like, really? Do you want to? Do you want to trust your family to make the right choices? Because how many times do we see families change the choices that the patient has made? Yeah. And they would stay at me and they'd be like, oh, 
I haven't thought about that. And I was like, and if your pain can be controlled, do you care? Wouldn't you rather have a voice in what's going on with you? I mean, you're medical. Wouldn't you rather know what's going on with you? And they're like, oh yeah. And as soon as I say that, they're like, okay, what, well, what else? Tell me more. <laughs> and so I tell them more about the research and they're like, I, I haven't met anybody yet. that has been like, no, that's still too crazy. Everyone's like, okay, let's try it. Tell me what to do. Like, let me know when we're ready and when we're doing this. And when I have all the tools and teach me how to do it, everyone's incredibly curious about it and willing to try. That's so validated. And I remember years ago talking to a medical director about this and he said, oh, well, we, good luck getting our nurses to do that. They'll never do that. Oh, and it made yeah. me so angry. It still makes my blood boil years <laughs> later. That is not our culture at all. Oh, and I don't think I'm like, obviously you don't know nurses. Yeah. You don't know the heart of nurses that sedate patients, just because we want to torture them. It's because we don't know what we're really doing to them. We've been uninformed and unsupported in these changes. And once we understand the big picture, watch out, nurses are going to overhaul this process <laughs> like you're doing. One of the questions that I often, well, not often, but a few times I've received from teams when I've um, been doing webinars with them is what do you say to them when they wake up? That is a genuine concern because it's such a new process to communicate with patients that are intubated. This seems to be innate for you. So what oh, recommendations know. would you give? It sounds like you've been doing the right thing and, and how do you, you've given them tools for communication and how do you know what to ask them or how to calm them down? Well, hey, they're not freaking out on me. <laughs> That's, I haven't had that experience. The only times I've had patients that have been really struggling are the ones that I've tried to kept super sedated like, or they've been bucking the vent really hard. And I think those are though they were early in my career and also in peak Delta and COVID and those patients are coming in with saturations in like the 50% and their hunger drive is, or their air hunger drive was so deep that I don't, I don't know that anything could help them at that point. And it had been hypoxic. And had been hypoxic and possibly hypoxic for days and just they're, they're worse, so ill. So I think there's a subset that we're always going to struggle with. But the ones that all, the, all of my experiences in waking up patients, it's because they're coming out of sedation and because I do keep the propofol going for them. I mean, there's, so talking with our medical director and our, one of our lead uh, pharmacists, the, because we're doing so many interventions in the ED, the decision was to keep propofol available for all of our patients. Like we're um, realigning bones and casting and suturing and all these other things that we would typically do conscious sedations for. So keeping propofol going for them, that we can also do boluses and give them a little bit of conscious sedation to help them manage through these more invasive things as we stabilize them to get them up to the ICUs has a benefit for us. So all my patients that I've woken up have propofol still on board and they're usually at very low rates. Like we can titrate our propofol up to 50 and I've don't think I've ever gone past 10 since I started doing this. And I just checked right up their fentanyl instead. And we can bolus off our pumps, both fentanyl and propofol. So I can just kind of control everything internally off of my pumps and not have to do anything too, too um, crazy, like running to my Omnicell and finding other nurses and getting the waste and leaving my patient that's waking up by themselves. I can do it mm -hmm. all right next to them. So that's really helpful because I'm never leaving their side and I can let them slowly wake up. So for instance, some of our doctors love atomidate and some of our doctors love succinylcholine. 
the ones that get sucks are going to be coming out of that, not even by the time that they're finished securing the innovation device. So that might give it some extra popa fall too, mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're we're still doing major interventions. I still have to shove another tube down their throat for their OG. Like I still have to do some invasive things with them. So I can very carefully control them coming out of their sedation and get their pain under control and focus on that. And I think once I get their pain under control and their discomfort with this whole situation, um, pulling them off the profile is really easy. And I just slowly back off of it for like the next half an hour to the hour that I have them and then let them wake up little by little. And I'll tell them, do you want to sleep a little bit more? Do you want to go back? Are you uncomfortable? And if they tell me, yes, I'll give them a little bit more propofol or I'll give them a bolus to let them relax a little bit more. And then we'll kind of just, I'll just work with them and let them tell me what they need. And then I haven't had any issues with them really bucking and trying to pull anything out because I'm giving them the option of what they want. Oh, so and going powerful. from there. And you're really applying the PADIS guidelines. Do yeah. an algo sedation. And I know I knock on propofol all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really, I'm, I'm talking about when it's given for days to weeks. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and it's a great medication for procedures, for, for surgery and things like that. That's really what it's meant for. And that's where it has the most benefit. So yeah, while you have it there and you're doing those procedures that no one should have to be fully conscious through. Yeah. That's a great because that's not going to induce high levels of delirium or create difficulty in um, removing later. And to do it in such a way in which the patient gets to navigate and dictate what they want and what they need, that is the ABCDEF bundle. Mm -hmm. So yeah. a knock on sedation, but in reality, the awake and walking ICU isn't always a sedation-less ICU. When it's needed, we can give it and we give it for those purposes for, to meet those goals and to humanize the process, but also to, in a way that it doesn't create a barrier or increase their likelihood of dying. So these aren't just bad medications. You can how to use them appropriately. And I think you said a really good example of that, that that is an appropriate time when you're continuing to do interventions and procedures, use it. You've got an airway and still, even during those procedures, you're not deeply sedating them. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to bring them down enough. So they're not as aware of it and able to manage or manage their way through it and not fight us as we're going through it. Which is um, perfect. And it kind of leads yeah. to the question of why does someone with um, pneumonia that's not getting a limb casted have to be at a RASA negative four? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think the other really big thing that I've been noticing too with communication and learning how to communicate with these patients is you have to be very direct and very simple with all of your questions with them, because especially initially as they're coming out, they basically only have yes and no in their brain. And they're not going to want to be communicating a lot more. So very pointed questions. And when they tell me they're in pain, I'll start like touching them in their body. Does it hurt up here? Does it hurt down here? And we'll play like a game of warmer and cooler until I can figure out where it's hurting for them and then go from there. Then I can also communicate with our doctor. Hey, I innovated them. Hey, they're on a fent drip of this. They're still in pain and they're saying their belly hurts. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> And the doctors are like, where did that come from? And they come back into the room and they reassess them and try and figure out what's going on next and go from there. Oh, as um, it should be. Yeah. I have always wondered how do you do not just a neuro exam, but the full assessment if someone's not participating in the exam 
Yeah, I I mean, that's been the hardest part for me transitioning into ED and transitioning into these innovative patients and sedated patients is I don't know how to assess these people. Like I'm, I'm used to kids, but they're awake kids and kids can't always tell you how they're feeling. So I like young kids kind of give me the tool of like really looking at the physiological state. It was so strange to just stare at this like fully sedated adult and be like, how do I know what's really going on with you? I don't, I know your vital signs and I know I can listen to your lungs and your bowels. I can feel your pulses and look at your skin color, but what's really going on with you? Like one of the reasons why I liked switching to adults is I could ask them questions and give me full answers. Right. <laughs> now I'm like, I, I can't do that with you, but you're an adult. That feels really strange. And I think the difference is in the ICU, it's so normal that we've stopped questioning that. Well, they're intubated. So therefore that this is all I'm going to get. Yeah. And whereas you're coming in with fairly new eyes coming from peds and coming from inpatient ER is new and intubation is new you're actually critically thinking through it and saying, this isn't a full assessment until I hear it from them, or could I get more out of them? And I love that you innately reorient them. And probably many times you're in the, you're in the ER, you've been intubated. Here's what we talked about and reminding them. And I think, I imagine that that brings a lot of the peace and the comfort and the trust that you're experiencing from patients because you're informing them and taking that time. I hope so. I'm not on their side, but I hope so. <laughs> right. I've never been intubated. It's a lot of, the, yeah. a lot of my, I don't know. <laughs> my assumptions come from survivors themselves. Those that yeah. didn't have this process of care and those that did. And they appreciated being informed in episode three with Susan East, the three times ARDS survivor. She said that one of the reasons after her first time with ARDS, she had documents drafted with her attorney protecting her against sedation was because she wanted to have her autonomy. She loved yeah. her family, but didn't fully trust them to make those decisions. And so even in subsequent um, times on the ventilator, she was, had ARDS two more times after that. At one point they wanted to do a bronchoscopy and her family was saying no. And she's like, hi, right here, I'm awake. Give me the paperwork. And she signed it. But it just oh. kind of makes my head hurt as well yeah. that the team didn't talk to her about it. Though she was awake, that was probably really unique for the team and only happened because that was her advanced directive. Sure. It probably just still didn't cross their mind to get authorization from the patient herself, but that should be the norm. It's just yeah. the exception that we have to go to outside sources for authorization, but that the patient should be able to navigate their own care, even during critical illness for the most part. Yeah. I think that was the part that struck me the most about learning about being awake on a ventilator was that like that for me personally, that was the key moment. I was like, they can make their own autonomous decisions. Yeah, of course I'm going to want that for them. Like that's just a, an obvious thing that I think that everybody who's sick would want for themselves. And I love families and I love how much they care about their family members. But the number of times I've seen DNRs revoked or changed because in that moment that acute fear of losing your loved one overtook all their good judgment mm -hmm. and I think patient autonomy is one of the nursing ethics right I can't remember exactly yeah. the clause or the wording but it's part of our nursing ethics is to allow patients to be informed and autonomous yeah and I think that's the biggest thing for me like I try and look at my nursing philosophy is I'm going to treat every patient how I would want to be treated if I was in their situation 
And that's just kind of how I keep my personal sanity going. And so the idea of me being so out of it that I can't make my own choices in my own health is very scary for me. So I would, I try as much as possible to keep that going for my patients. And so part, waking them up is part of that and letting them start making choices. And if their choice is that they want to go back to sleep, then that's their choice. I'll honor that. No, <laughs> that's I mean, choice. I mean, to back to sedation, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> not, not fully sleep. Yeah, back to sedation. Yeah. yeah. No, they should have a, have a choice. And I remember that was being challenged to me when I started the podcast. I was saying, give patients a choice. But then I realized people started asking me, well, do you let your patients choose? And I thought, no, I guess I don't. We, we just will say when you are into after intubation, you'll wake up and then we'll keep talking about this. <laughs> and so I went out to, I don't know, a few maybe two dozen of these patients that were intubated and made it started making the thing to say, would you like to be sedated right now? Every single one said no. And they even looked at me like I was crazy or wrote on their board. Why question mark. And I'm like, I just thought I would ask, I don't, you know, but I still think it is important to say this is an option, but when we do that, and especially when we do informed consents for like any procedure for intubation, whether it's we're informing the patient or the family, we need to include sedation as part of that, but we have to include the risks involved. Otherwise it's not a true informed consent, but we're not doing that because we ourselves don't understand the risks. We don't understand the options. And then we don't provide that kind of transparency and the options to our, our patients. So I have a whole episode on that, but I just along those lines of autonomy, we have to be transparent and honest about the options and the risks involved on either side. Yeah, I will admit though, every the times that I've been able to tell them that we're, or we've talked to them about their innovation. And then I told them, Hey, I'm going to wake you up afterwards. And there's going to be tubes down your throat. This is how you say yes and no. I haven't really given them the choice of waking up, but once they're awake, I will look at them and go, okay, you're awake. Are you in pain? And then we deal with their pain first. And I go, okay, I can give you drugs to make you feel more sedated. If you're needing more comfort, do you need that comfort? And then we'll go from there. And the the three that I've had that have been in that situation, none of them have said yes, <laughs> but I'm open to them like saying a lot to say, <laughs> here you are on the verge of death. We could do the thing that could definitely increase your risks of death that we could give you delirium, which could traumatize you and or double your risks of death. It seems like a lot to explain that in the moment when they're already having yeah. whatever instability that certain is a breath hypoxia that's requiring intubation. So I personally haven't found a moment where it felt right to say, here are all the risks involved, unless maybe COVID patients that are on high flow for a long time. And we say, you know, down the road, you could end up intubated here, are your choices, things like that. But absolutely once once they're intubated and they're awake and they can compare, how am I doing now? Mm -hmm. And would I prefer these risks? I don't know. I don't know exactly when the right time is, but I do think that, I don't know. It's it just, it also feels weird to give an option of, we could set you up for much more trauma, disability, and death. If you'd like, what do you yeah. prefer? It just seems counterintuitive, but if we're, and even if there isn't an option, if someone absolutely requires sedation, we should be telling families, this could cause delirium. And here's what that could look like and preparing them not to freak them out, but to help them be prepared to help their loved one rehabilitate and be part of that process and to help us get them out of sedation. Cause it could be difficult when they do have delirium. And so there's a lot of education of all the team members that needs yeah. to happen, but yeah. And I'm part of that. Yeah. And I don't think we ever get that option in the ED. Like we're not, we're never innovating people on a slow roll. Right. <laughs> that doesn't, yeah. 
that doesn't really happen. We're always innovating people in an acute situation and we're just meeting them. Like the, I don't think I've ever had a patient that we innovated that we had been sitting in our ER for more than 45 minutes. Right, no, that's absolutely true. And you yeah. don't have that, yeah, that's just not the time to be chit-chatting. Yeah, um, no. But once it's stabilized, you're already taking that opportunity to say, what do you need? What can I help yeah. with? Would, do you yeah, but I think once we can give them the autonomy to start making their choices, then we should. That's just part of any medical process. Our doc, I, I mean, our doctors are doing it as well. They're always giving our patients their choices. So, and maybe that's a perspective that can be shared. It's almost like you're seeing the ventilator as enabling them to be stabilized, to communicate, to be comfortable, to make decisions. Yeah. Whereas we've been seeing the ventilator as <laughs> this door that you go through, you shut it and that's it. They don't get to be human anymore because they walked through that door of needing to be on the ventilator. Yeah. But you're flipping that you're changing that in the ER and then the ICU. And I think that is so powerful. And I keep saying one clinician can start breaking down these barriers. It's going to take the whole team, but you're chipping away at it already. And I just, am so grateful for your powerful example, initiative and testimonial. Is there anything else that you would share with the ER and ICU community? I think the ER and the ICU community, I mean, we work so closely together in completely different ways, but in the end, I, I feel like we're just such partners and I wish there was more communication. I, I recognize that what's going on in my hospital and my hospital system is a bit unique because we are transitioning to awake and walking. So it's easy for the ED to transition with them. But if there's our ICUs out there that are awake and walking and you haven't partnered with your ED, reach out to them and talk to your doctors and your nursing leadership and see if you can have them start helping you because it, we are in a spot where we can start helping you. And I think you, I think ICUs would be really pleasantly surprised that EDs are filled with incredibly intelligent nurses and doctors that want to do the best for their patients and are happy to partner and set things up because that's inherently what we're doing for every unit. We're trying to get the patient stable and prepped for wherever they're landing in our hospitals. That's our end goal for all our patients. And so what we have to do to help make that happen, we will absolutely happily do. And then, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. So if you're, if you're working in a hospital where you're waking patients up in the ICU, talk to the ED, see if they can partner with you. They, you might be really pleasantly surprised that they would happily do it. And maybe I had done the same thing, made the same assumption as people do when I assumed that the ED wouldn't really be interested in it. Yeah. And then now I've interviewed someone for an EMS and now an ED nurse. And that just proves that in every facet of our system, there are caring people that are willing and anxious to make whatever impact they can to the patient's survival. That's what you're doing as yeah. an ED nurse. But now you found another way to contribute to their ultimate success and you're all over it. And that is probably a shared mentality and willingness that we just have to tap into and connect with. I mean, literally the conversation between me and my chief, I was eating lunch and he was walking through the, the lounge to his office. And I was like, hey, I need to set up a meeting with you. And he goes, oh, what about? And I was like, I told him a little bit of the project. He goes, awake and walking ICUs and just stared at me. And I was like, so I told him a little bit. And he goes, okay, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm going to go look that up. And yeah, we're meeting. And it was so, it was so interesting immediate but his immediate response is oh people do that because we don't live in that world and then as soon as I told him about it he goes oh I'm looking that up and he was immediately on board it was such an easy thing um 
So I, I'd, the initial response might just be, hey, we don't know about this. Exactly. But at least from in within our system, the response was, yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, that's really cool. Oh yeah, let's totally support our partners in doing this. We're on board. And I mean, the, our protocols do have limitations. Like they're the first step in this protocol we're building is what RAS score do you want the patient at? Because there are patients that need to be sedated and for neuroprotective reasons and for other reasons. And so our doctors will make that choice. And then it's us as nurses to, to honor the choices of our doctors because they're the drivers of that, those things. And then from there, they pick their medication profiles for these patients. Um, and it even the orders that we're hoping to have built, it automatically defaults to a RAS of minus two. And then if they want to change it, they have to make a comment as to how long they want that patient at a deeper RAS level so that we can understand what they're thinking. Could it allow for a lighter RAS as well? Yeah, it can. So we picked a RAS of minus two. One of the other things that I'm not sure our ICU counterparts know is there's actually some really great research going on. Dr. Freeman at Vanderbilt is doing a lot of research on innovation protocols in the ED setting, because most of the innovation research is being done in the ICU setting. Mm -hmm. So he's doing research in the ED setting and specifically in Angelus sedation. So the protocol that we're going to end up following is very much off of one of his protocols that he published on. And his research shows that just because of the time constraints that we typically have patients, a RAS of minus two to minus one is more realistic for us. We're not going to get them to a zero. They're just hopefully not going to be with us that long. And especially now in kind of this more stable COVID world, like we're seeing our holding times go down. And there's a lot of research too that shows that holding any patient in the ER for more than four to six hours starts impacting their uh, morbidity and mortality, whether it's like a patient going to a med surge or an ICU, it doesn't matter. We as ER nurses just can't provide the best care for these patients because we're always changing our focus based on the acuity of our other patients. And you could at any moment have like four patients that are all going to be discharged to the street, or you can have four ICU patients or any mix they're in. Cause that's what yeah. our ratio is four to one. And the point so, of this is to create an ICU yeah. With an ER. Yeah. So it's, there's, yeah. So your own role. Yeah. What it should be. So the realistic, uh, his research is showing that the kind of realistic number for ED nurses to, and doctors to aim for is a RASA minus two. And hopefully at that point, they're going up to that. ICU. Now, if they get stuck down with us for longer, then we can have that discussion with our doctor. And we, in this protocol, we even have the option of, we don't use Presidex in our ER very much. It's very rare. And I don't know a lot of ERs that use Presidex. I know it's a question that I asked. The response was, they're just unfamiliar. Yeah. And our pharmacist is this pharmacist I've been working with is one of the smartest men I've ever met. <laughs> He's, I don't know how he holds this much information about drugs in his brain. And his okay. response was, let's do it. I'm open to putting it on the order set. And our chief was yeah. like, all right, but let's have conversations when we do it. And so I think if we are starting to hold a patient for longer and they are mostly off their probe drip, we can already talk, we can talk about switching to Presidex instead. But we have to learn how to do that in our ER. So our pharmacists, like when you're, when we're ready to do education, I will sit down and do education with all the nurses about how Presidus works and how we titrate it and how we do everything. 
he's ready to stand by our side and teach us. So. Oh, that's so exciting. I, I'm a personal fan of Presidex, even though in the wake and walk nice you, it's still rarely used. Oh, really? So your first go to, oh yeah. And if it's used, it's often, you know, if they have a high RAS, we're using it to get them to a RAS of zero mm. and hardly ever deeper, but it can go deeper. That's why we see some of these other studies. The outcomes aren't that different because they still got them to a deep, like a negative two with Presidex, but nonetheless, it has a lower rate of delirium, less brain yeah. disruption. The outcomes are different. So even if you're setting them up on a Presidex drip and that's for whatever reason, continued in the ICU, you've still improved an outcome just because you didn't have a momodazolam or propofol. Yeah. So, um, I'm a fan. I think that's, that's an exciting update as well. I mean, the wake and walk in ICU, usually patients are fully awake, not on anything right after intubation. And then we go from there and see what they need. That works really well. But I think even what you're doing, even arrest negative two and having, but it sounds like if they're doing hand signals that they're probably a little bit of lighter rest, at least at some point and showing ICU nurses that that is what they're capable of and having them expect that and want that you're changing outcomes significantly, Julie. And I'm so proud of you. Like that's, <laughs> that is the power of nursing there. And I'm just excited to hear your updates. Keep us posted. Let me know and I'll keep sharing it on social media. Any cool stories that you have, share them. This is so powerful. And I appreciate everything that you've shared and that you're doing for your hospital system and the community in general. I, I'm just really excited to be in a hospital system that's so supportive and in a department that is so supportive. I mean, even my doctors, like when I intubate, because we don't have the protocol set up, I just tell them what I want and they're like, cool, do it. I, <laughs> and I'll look at them and be like, you, you're okay with me waking this one up? And they'll be like, sure. Yeah do it. And that's how the awake and walk nice. You started as the nurse saying, what if we did this? I mean, this is back in the nineties with Polly Bailey going to her medical director. And he says, he thought, well, that sounds crazy, but I trust nursing instinct. And that's what we need to work together with is trusting each other, working together to achieve these goals and not just sticking with what we know or this hierarchy that mm -hmm. does nobody any good. <laughs> yeah. We very much don't have that in RER. I, I love that the partnership that we have and I'm, um, we'll just continue to say how grateful I am to all the support that they've given me in this project and continue to give me as I continue to kind of roll it out. And I'm really excited to see where our department goes and where our hospital system as a whole goes with it, because I think we can provide really great, we, we do provide really great care and we're just continuing to step forward in that for our patients in the most um, educated way that we can. No, so powerful. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. To schedule a consultation and connect on social media, as well as find supportive resources, including case studies, ebook, episode transcripts, and citations to research, please visit the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.